I almost feel like your nomination is this proxy fight about the future of fossil fuels. Well, really, isn't everything a proxy fight about that at this point? Yeah. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also up in Oregon on the... Oh, I miss California. Up in uh, Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Sorry about that, California. Then up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, we're going to be talking about something that I think is important to New Mexico today. On KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, I saw you nodding in agreement there when I was <laughs> saying uh, in response to that uh, quote at the top that, that everything is a... Is a proxy fight over fossil fuels now. Yes, in one way... like that, yeah. In one way or another, it, it really is. Yeah. I mean, that's what dominates our politics and dominates our lives right All now. All right, so I already got something right. <laughs> we barely started the show. Let's quit now while uh, we're... That's it. Thank you for listening. (laughs) All right. Well, you know what? Uh, Speaking of, uh, after uh, posting yesterday's broadcast with my uh, conversation with Dr. Carl Krupp of the uh, University of Arizona's Zuckerman College of Public Health, in which he warned about his fears that COVID cases and deaths could soon begin to spike again, perhaps even worse than what we saw uh, over the holidays with uh, some states and cities now easing up on restrictions once again, just like they did last October before that huge spike that we are only now coming down from. Uh, Krupp noted that our current rates of infection, hospitalization and deaths while falling in recent weeks are now starting to tick up again and are now just about where they were in late summer and early fall last year and said that he feared, quote, we're screwing it up all over again, which I used as the headline when I posted uh, our our broadcast yesterday at bradblog.com. So after posting it, I got some some blowback. 
Really? Yeah, not a lot, but a bit from some people who, you know, maybe had only read the headline and responded to say, oh, that's wrong. We've got this under control now. We've got vaccines. We've got the Biden administration finally on the job. Maybe Krupp and I were just over worrying at this point. Well, in support of that argument today, there is some seemingly good news breaking just before airtime today. President Joe Biden announced that drug maker Merck will help manufacture a vaccine developed by Johnson and Johnson. Announced, uh, and he announced just before air that the U.S. will now have enough doses for every adult American. By the end of May, that is two months earlier than the administration's previous goal uh, of hoping to have enough shots by the end of July. And so, yes, that is very good news. Biden said in remarks from the White House just moments ago, quote, that's progress, warning that there could still be delays, however, in getting those shots into Americans arms. Nonetheless, the arrangement between two competitors, Johnson & Johnson and Merck, is, uh, well, both encouraging and unusual, but does underscore the urgency in manufacturing and distributing enough vaccine doses to inoculate as many Americans as possible as quickly as possible, as uh, CNN reports this afternoon. Biden hailed the partnership as a way to quickly jumpstart sluggish vaccine production, likening it to cooperation between corporations during World War II, which makes sense because the White House said it was utilizing the Defense Production Act to help equip two different Merck facilities in order to manufacture the Johnson & Johnson product. The planned partnership was first reported by the Washington Post earlier on Tuesday, with Biden bringing the good news that they would have enough doses for every American by the end of May, coming just before airtime. Now, before this weekend, two COVID-19 vaccines, one from Pfizer, one from Moderna, had already been authorized for emergency use in the U.S. by the FDA. Unlike those vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine requires just one shot. And, by the way, it can last for months in a simple refrigerator as opposed to the other two vaccines, which require special sub-freezing equipment. Johnson & Johnson said the company had about 4 million doses of its vaccine ready to ship immediately, that they should have 20 million ready by the end of March, 100 million doses in the first half of the year, on their way to a billion doses by the end of this year, according to its CEO. That, as we discussed uh, yesterday with Dr. Krupp, is good news indeed. Oh, definitely it's good news. Especially because during a White House COVID-19 response team briefing on Monday, CDC Director uh, Rochelle Walensky said that she is, quote, deeply concerned about the potential shift now in the trajectory of the pandemic. While the number of new daily cases has been declining precipitously in recent weeks, the most recent seven-day average of new cases at about 67,000 people, that's confirmed as infected each day still, 67,000, the most recent seven-day average represents an increase of a little more than 2% compared to the prior seven days. 
The most recent seven-day average of deaths has also increased more than 2%. Walensky said on Monday, quote, Please hear me clearly. At this level of cases with variants spreading, we stand to completely lose the hard-earned ground we have gained. Walensky said the country can stop the surge of cases in this country by wearing a mask that fits, maintaining social distance, uh, practicing good hand hygiene and avoiding crowds. She says, please stay strong in your conviction. Continue wearing your well-fitting mask and take the other public health prevention actions that we know work. So, you know, there were some who, who saw at least the headline from yesterday's show, thought I was over worrying. Maybe they hadn't heard the news, the the urging from the CDC. Saying keep up the protocols. Yeah, because things are already turning around. I suspect they certainly hadn't heard the conversation with Krupp, who was warning that we could end up worse than we were last fall. Yeah, we are in a gray area, which I think is what is most dangerous for the public's understanding that it's going to take time, not until the end of May, for all of those vaccination vaccines to be available. There's that two-month gap there, at least, well, where infections can still surge. But it's not really a gray area. If you look at the numbers, the numbers are ticking back up. And that has at least the head of the CDC very worried. And it's got Krupp, uh, you know, asking, uh, well, very uh, saying not, not very optimistic that yeah. we are screw he, that he's afraid that we are screwing it up all over again. Well, OK, so we got the good news that things are looking better now with uh, Johnson and Johnson and Merck and more vaccines coming out quicker than expected. That is good news. But then you have to put that with the other big story that just broke before airtime, suggesting that, yep. We are screwing it up all over again. Governor Greg Abbott of Texas ended, ended his statewide mask mandate on Tuesday and said that all businesses in the state could reopen next Wednesday with no capacity limits whatsoever. All businesses can reopen 100% and nobody needs to wear a mask anywhere. How's that going to work out? Abbott took that action even after federal health officials had warned governors not to ease restrictions yet because progress across the country to, in reducing uh, uh, cases appeared to have plateaued in the last week. Abbott said, quote, COVID still exists in Texas and the United States and across the globe, but state mandates are no longer needed. Because advanced treatments are now available for people with COVID-19, the state is able to test large numbers of people for the virus each day, and 5.7 million vaccine shots have already been given to Texas. Speaking to reporters in Lubbock on Tuesday afternoon, Dr. Abbott, I'm sorry, Governor Abbott, <laughs> Uh, said that Texans could decide for themselves what precautionary measures they want to, to uh, take to limit the spread of the virus and that top elected officials in each county could reimpose restrictions if hospital capacities passed 15 percent. At this time, however, people and businesses don't need the state telling them how to operate, he said. I would disagree and I suspect medical professionals would as well. As would I, as well. 
Are you noticing how I haven't blamed you for this yet as a native Texan? I'm just, I'm trying to be nice. This uh, all happened after today. I left. It is not, not my your fault. fault. Yeah, it's, it's a little your fault. <laughs> all right. Uh, though conditions have improved from a huge surge over the holidays, the New York Times reports the coronavirus is still rapidly spreading. Yes, in Texas, the state has been averaging about 7,600 new cases every single day recently. That is a rebound after a drop in February when testing was disrupted by the severe winter storm there. It is among the uh, top 10 states in the country in recent spread. And not just because it's got a whole lot of people in it, but relative to the size of its population for every 100,000 people, according to New York Times' database. And, yes, Texans are still dying of COVID-19 in alarming numbers. The state reported an average of 227 COVID-19 deaths a day just over the past week. 227 a day. But, you know, by all means, no more masks needed. Open up the theaters, open up the gyms, the concerts, the salons, 100 percent, the restaurants. Freedom, baby. Abbott made the reopening announcement on the anniversary of Texas's Declaration of Independence from Mexico in 1836. And, of course, he is facing tons of pressure uh, and criticism for the power and water outages from that recent winter storm that have still left thousands without water in the state after pipes froze and broke, along with the state's energy grid that is deregulated, privatized, and, and thus not winterized by its private owners who would hate to invest company profits into making the system reliable and safe, you know, for residents in the cold weather so, yeah, this ought to uh, anger enough people that maybe they'll even forget about Abbott's failure to keep the lights on and the water flowing across the state. Now all we have to worry about is people dying. So, yeah, we are uh, being stupid again. What did he say? Yeah, what did Dr. Krupp say? Yeah, we are being... Uh, We're screwing it up again. Screwing it up again. What a shock. Meanwhile, in Washington, President Joe Biden's cabinet is taking shape at the slowest pace of any in modern history, with fewer than a dozen nominees for top posts confirmed more than a month into his tenure. Among Biden's 23 nominees with cabinet rank, just 11 have been confirmed by the Senate. That would be less than half. According to the Center for Presidential Transition, about a month into their first terms, the previous four presidents each had about 84 percent of their core cabinet picks confirmed. The delay in confirmations means some departments are left left without their top decision makers as they attempt to put in place policies to address overlapping crises brought on by the coronavirus pandemic and its disastrous handling by the previous administration. Former Health and Human Services Secretary Donna Shalala said that there are a number of big decisions at HHS and across the federal government that are waiting on leadership from the top. In the middle of this huge health crisis, she says, this is the wrong thing to do. But of course, that is 
arguably why Republicans are slow walking the process in any way that they can think of. Shalala, by the way, was confirmed just two days after President Bill Clinton was sworn in. She was allowed to become the Health and Human Services Secretary and said that she had her chain of command ready to go and could immediately dig into a long list of decisions and policy changes at HHS at the time. And, of course, we weren't in the middle of a horrific pandemic at that point. Exactly. California Attorney General Javier Becerra, uh, on the other hand, uh, he's the Biden administration's HHS nominee. He will finally, finally get a committee vote on Wednesday Almost a month and a half after Biden has uh, taken office, uh, even though he's expected to receive a very easy confirmation. The administration currently lacks top leaders at the Justice Department, at Housing and Urban Development, at the Small Business Administration, uh, which is key to its implementation of the $1.9 trillion coronavirus aid bill that uh, the Democrats hope to pass into law later this month without a single vote of Republican support, it appears. And several of Biden's cabinet picks would make history, in fact, if confirmed by the Senate as the first woman or the first person of color to serve in their role, as Joe Biden has kept his promise to appoint the most diverse uh, presidential cabinet, I would say, by far in, in history. Uh, Among the progress made so far on nominations this week, Judge Merrick Garland was finally approved by committee. He now awaits a full Senate vote. Other nominees have made it through committee, but have been waiting for weeks for a vote in the Senate. Uh, Today, Miguel Cardona was uh, confirmed on the Senate floor to head the Department of Education. Rhode Island's Governor Gina Raimondo was confirmed as Commerce Secretary. There are at least six nominees who have cleared the votes in the necessary committees, but they are still waiting for a vote by the full Senate. And another four or five, including Becerra, uh, are awaiting committee votes on Thursday. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee is expected to finally vote on the nomination of Congresswoman Deb Holland of New Mexico to the critical position. Critical right now because, you know, everything is a proxy for fossil fuels. (laughs) Uh, Critical position of Interior Department Secretary. Her historic nomination as the first Native American to be nominated to any presidential cabinet position is being closely watched by the Native American community. And after a couple of brutal days of hearings last week and attacks on Holland by Republican senators in the committee, uh, many in Indian country are kind of up in arms right now about the treatment that she has received. We'll talk about that next on the broadcast as the first indigenous American nominated to head the U.S. Interior Department meets a bunch of white guys with a lot of fossil fuel money behind them. Author, activist, journalist, and tribal member Julian Brave Noisecat joins us next to explain on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. (laughs) 
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Nice try. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. When Wyoming's Republican U.S. Senator John Barrasso snapped at Congresswoman Deb Holland during her confirmation hearing last week, many in Indian country were incensed. The exchange, coupled with descriptions of the Interior Secretary nominee as, quote, radical by other white male Republicans, left some feeling Holland is being treated differently because she is a Native American woman. Holland is the first Native American to be nominated for Secretary of the Interior, and to many, as we will discuss with my guest momentarily, that that is a very big deal. Barrasso seemed to be pushing Holland to agree to release species from the endangered species list for some reason, though many have suggested he was simply hoping to find a legitimate reason any reason to oppose Holland's nomination to a post that would have a lot of control over what happens in Barrasso's fossil fuel rich state of Wyoming. We've had questions about the Endangered Species Act. Uh, it's an important conservation tool, as you've said, uh, that was ex- enacted to protect species from extinction. The proper application of the laws resulted in the recovery of several species. It's important to me that the law be applied in a responsible manner so that we can protect the species that truly need protection. Uh, Yesterday, when you were asked uh, why you would sponsor legislation that would put the grizzly bears under permanent federal protection, federal protection permanently, your bill in the House with your name on it, you said, I imagine at the time I was caring about bears. I want to make sure you care about the law. There's a law of the land. Will you commit to doing everything in your power to fight the frivolous lawsuits and delist species that government scientists have concluded are fully recovered? Thank you, Ranking Member Barrasso. And um, I know that the Endangered Species Act is extremely important, as you said. I, if I'm confirmed, I would seek uh, partnerships uh, with states, with tribes, with local communities to talk about this important issue. And f- I'm talking about the law. Sir, I will always follow the law. Thank you. Well, that was a lot of mansplaining. In Indian uh, country, many saw that exchange and others like it as inappropriate and disrespectful and in no small part due to Holland's heritage. If it was any other person, they would not be subjected to being held accountable for their ethnicity, said Cheryl Andrews Malteus, chairwoman of the Wampanoag, Wampanoag tribe in Massachusetts. 
After the Senate committee hearing last week, uh, Barrasso, the former chair of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee, said that his reaction, snapping at Holland, was simply a sign of frustration over her dodging questions. Among Holland's supporters across the nation who tuned in, it was infuriating. Rebecca Ortega of the Santa Clara Pueblo in Holland's home state of New Mexico said, quote, I just feel like if it would have been a white man or a white woman, he would never have yelled like that. The Interior Department has broad oversight of energy development along with tribal affairs, and some Republican senators have labeled Holland, quote, radical over her calls to reduce dependence on fossil fuels and address climate change. But if that makes Deb Holland a radical, then 86 percent of the world is similarly radical, according to new polling from the Pew Trust, which finds just 10 percent of adults across the globe believe that fossil fuel production should be increased versus a whopping 86 percent who believe that increasing renewable energy should be the priority instead. That would seem to make Wyoming Senator Barrasso the radical on this matter, at least across the globe. But America first, right? Well, Pew found similar numbers in their spring survey last year when looking at the U.S. alone. They found that 79% of U.S. adults said the more important priority for addressing the country's energy supply should be to develop alternative energy sources such as wind and solar. Just one in five adults, yes, the same 10% as from the global survey, said the more important priority should be to expand the production of oil, coal, and natural gas. So again, who is the radical here, Mr. Barrasso? Even worse for the radical Barrasso, adults in his very own party are also demanding renewable energy sources over dirty, dangerous fossil fuels. Pew found majorities of adults in both parties said the bigger priority should be to develop alternative energy sources rather than expand the production of oil, coal and natural gas. Around two thirds of Republicans and Republican leaning independents, that's 65 percent, said that, as did around nine in 10 Democrats. Sure, but those Republicans, maybe they're just rhinos, Republicans in name only. Well, the Pew survey dug even deeper, looking at actual political ideology and found that over half of self-described conservative Republicans, 54 percent, said that they, too, favored the development of alternative energy over expanded production of fossil fuels. Democratic Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington state pushed back on what she sees as the real reason for the attacks on Holland. I almost feel like your nomination is this proxy fight about the future of fossil fuels. And you've already stated very clearly here, you are going to carry out President Biden's agenda. And so we very much appreciate the fact that you're doing that. And that's what I think a president deserves. Nonetheless, Republicans on the committee pressed on. Senator John Kennedy from the fossil fuel reliant state of Louisiana, after two days of hearings, called Holland a, quote, neo-socialist left of Lenin whack job. But Republican Senator Steve Daines of Montana said it's not about race. He said, as much as I would love to see a Native American be on the president's cabinet, I have concerns about her record. To say otherwise is outrageous and offensive. 
Andrews Malteus, the chair of the Wampanoag tribe, saw the use of the word radical as code for you're an Indian. Civil rights activists say Holland's treatment fits a pattern of minority nominees encountering more political resistance than white counterparts. Nonetheless, despite Republican opposition, it is believed that Holland has enough Democratic support, particularly after Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of the coal state of West Virginia said that he would vote for her to become the first Native American to lead the Interior Department. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee is expected to vote on her nomination on Thursday before the full Senate chimes in thereafter. A Native American in charge of the U.S. Interior Department is a very big deal to many in the Native American community, and many are pushing back hard at Senate Republicans. Writing at Washington Post after last week's hearings, Julian Brave Noisecat cited Barrasso shouting over Holland, accusing the congresswoman of wanting to legalize drugs to replace tax revenue from oil and gas. That's weird, since, as Noisecat notes, she has backed legalizing and taxing cannabis as a congresswoman, but never advocated doing so instead of taxing fossil fuels. Montana's Steve Daines, who, like Barrasso, has received more than $1 million in campaign contributions from oil and gas companies, demanded that Holland retract a tweet stating that, quote, Republicans don't believe in science, unquote. Of course, in 2019, as Noisecat notes, Daines said, quote, to suggest that climate change is human caused is not a sound scientific conclusion. That was 2019. That was not 2009. That was not 1990. That was 2019. Oddly enough, Holland is the one who should apologize. Utah Senator Mike Lee, writes Noisecat, expressed his dissatisfaction with the designation of Bears Ears as a national monument, asking whether Holland thought it was appropriate for stakeholders, people who have some sort of economic interest in the land or some sort of connection to the land, to be involved in the national monument designation process. Lee was apparently unaware, says Noisecat, that the nominee's Pueblo relatives are among the tribes that consider Bears Ears to be a sacred place, tracing their connections to the land to time immemorial. So what is really going on here? Well, I am happy to be joined now by Julian Brave Noisecat. He is a journalist, activist, artist, and the vice president of policy and strategy at Data for Progress, a progressive think tank. He's also a fellow at the Type Media Center, NDN Collective, and Center for Humans and Nature. And as if, as if all of that is not enough, Julian was named to Time Magazine's Time 100 Next list of emerging leaders. And his work has appeared in The New York Times, Washington Post, The Nation, and just about everywhere else. He also happens to be a member of a Native American tribe himself, whose name I am not even going to try to pronounce, but I'm happy to let him do so. Julian Brave Noisecat, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I feel like the we don't even need to have the conversation. You've, you've covered all the points in no. the introduction. <laughs> no, actually, I don't think I have. I have a lot of questions for you. Of course, the first one being, uh, can you help me out with your tribal identity so I don't screw that up? Yeah, certainly. So um, I'm a citizen of the Cannon Lake Band Sikaskin, which is a First Nation in what is now British Columbia, Canada. Uh, and I also have uh, rel relations at the Leewat Nation of Mount Curry, which is also 
in BC, uh, but I've lived in the uh, United States since uh, I was born. My dad moved here actually on this this treaty called the Jay Treaty, which allows uh, status Indians in Canada to live and work in the United States. So he's been living and working here since the 80s, and uh, I was actually born born on this side of the border. Ah, so. okay. So so you count. You're not one of those uh, Canadians that we have to worry about. All right. Well, you wrote you wrote recently uh, at both The Nation and Washington Post that Deb Holland's appointment to Interior has enormous meaning to Native Americans. Uh, please tell me about that. Why is this particular nomination so important uh, to Indian country? So I think to understand why uh, Secretary-designate Holland's nomination is so important, you have to understand, um, you know, the history uh, in particular of the Interior Department, a department which uh, was, you know, once aligned with essentially the annihilation of Native nations. In fact, the third Interior Secretary, a man named Alexander Stewart, described uh, its mission as, quote, to civilize or exterminate Native people. And Mm. throughout its history, the Interior Department has implemented various policies that, uh, you know, sought to um, carry out that mission. You know, there was, of course, the Dawes Act in the late 1800s that alienated vast swaths of land from tribal nations here in the United States. Uh, there were, of course, the uh, boarding schools that Native children were taken away to, uh, where they were forbidden to speak their language and were, where their culture was quite often literally beaten out of them. Mm. Uh, and then there was, of course, the era of termination in the mid-1900s, uh, where the explicit stated policy of the United States was to terminate uh, tribal nations. And, in fact, there were a number of tribes that had their sovereign legal status uh, revoked in the eyes of the law. And, you know, to have a Native person not just in the cabinet, but, you know, at the helm of that agency, you know, is a, is a monumental, um, you know, achievement, uh-huh. uh, an immense, you know, step forward for our people, and I would say also for, for, for the nation. And, you know, I think that that was illustrated really beautifully uh, in Holland's introduction to the Senate Energy and Natural Resource Committee last Tuesday. You know, Holland uh, introduced herself first in her Karis uh, Pueblo language, Mm -hmm. the language of her people and her family, and acknowledged also that the hearing was taking place on the traditional homelands of the Piscataway people in what is now Washington, D.C. And, you know, I think that when you juxtapose, you know, Stewart's statement that Interior was designed to civilize or exterminate Native people with, you know, Holland's presence yeah. and and words, which are a direct refutation of that mission. Um, you know, I think you get a good picture of why this nomination is is so meaningful to Native people and, and you know, uh, also personally moving to me. So it would have been meaningful anyway, I guess, uh, it, it, just to underscore that she will be the first... Native American, incredibly enough, to hold any cabinet position in any presidential administration. Uh, but the fact that, yeah, it's a department specifically where, where Stewart, uh, what you're talking about there was genocide, frankly, by the U.S., uh, directed uh, by the Interior Department uh, itself, in, in a sense. 
yeah, this is this is pretty huge. Holland will also now oversee, as I believe it's still called, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. That's based at the Interior Department. What might that mean for that particular bureau uh, versus uh, years versus in years past, whether you know during Republican or Democratic administrations? So I think it's really important to understand what Interior does. You know, so Interior oversees about a fifth of the United States landmass. Uh, it also you know, has uh, purview over vast swaths of the natural resources uh, that are, you know, on those lands. And, you know, of course, uh, for Native people, those are lands and resources that were taken uh, from our nations and our ancestors. And, you know, the fact that now it will be a Native executive who will be, you know, charged with um, you know, the implementation and creation of policies governing those areas is a remarkable sort of return of, of power to our people. Mm. Um, you know, at the same time, as you were saying, the Interior Department is also uh, in charge of the lion's share of um, the relationship, uh, the government-to-government relationship between the United States federal government and the 574 federally recognized tribes across the United States. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, through through agencies like the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, you know, the Interior Department uh, manages a number of, of different programs uh, related to, you know, tribal uh, services uh, and related to the trust relationship between, which is a legal relationship between mm-hmm. the federal government and tribes. And, you know, never before in the history of... Uh, you know, interior, have we ever had a native person on the other side Mm. of the desk, on the other side of the table, you know, holding that relationship. And so I think tribes are very hopeful that, um, you know, we can make some further headway uh, in correcting the the nation-to-nation relationship between uh, the United States and, and uh, first Which, of course, is something else that I'm sure that the Republicans are uh, quite concerned about. Uh, she was called uh, a radical and a divisive partisan, sort of by one Republican after another, even though, as you note in your own reporting, uh, Julian, uh, Holland introduced the most bills with bipartisan support of all House freshmen in 2019. Was or is there anything particularly radical about any of those bills to uh, lead to this accusation? Uh, the short answer to that is no. Um, you know, the, the United States Constitution describes treaties with Native nations as the quote-unquote supreme law of the land, um, you know, the, the radical position, in my view, is the one that has been uh, the status quo for the federal government, which is to break, uh, you know, its own supreme laws. Uh, so I found actually Barrasso's sort of beration, berating um, mm-hmm. Holland on the, at the Senate committee uh, hearing last week to be, you know, quite ironic, you know, to, to lecture someone who um, has throughout her career stood for, you know, actually upholding um, these sacred agreements between uh, tribes and the federal government, you know, as somehow someone who does not respect or acknowledge the law. I thought that was deeply wrong and ironic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, interestingly, I would say that, uh, you know, many tribes come from Western states, uh, which tend to lean, uh, you know, towards uh, conservatives increasingly in this, this polarized country. And, um, you know, for that reason, tribes actually have historically had 
um, you know, pretty decent relationships with uh, various Republican representatives. And, uh, you know, I think that that actually could really be changing now that we're seeing, you know, the Democrats put forward the first ever Native Cabinet Secretary mm. and watching um, Republicans, many of whom come from states with sizable tribal populations, uh, lining up to, you know, attack her pretty viciously. Yeah, and... Um, and so I think there's an interesting dynamic here wherein Republicans might actually be burning their own wagon. And and you, you speak to that point specifically in the Washington Post. I want to ask you about one of those points, but it, what is her... Uh, her position on fossil fuels that seems to be at least uh, so freaking out so many Republicans is it radical yeah so <laughs> uh, so the the Biden administration has placed a pause on drilling and leasing uh, on public lands. Uh, this has been a cause of significant outrage uh, from conservatives uh, despite the fact that the oil and gas industry is actually still sitting on seven thousand seven hundred unused permits to drill and lease on public lands, and despite the fact that throughout its history, um, the Interior Department has offered those leases for pennies on the dollar to some of the most wealthy um, and resourced corporations in the world. And of course, uh, if they're getting those leases at pennies on the dollar, you know, the people who are losing out are uh, taxpayers, citizens, uh, and tribes who, you know, have the rightful claim to those lands in the first place. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's uh, a lot of um, sort of manufactured outrage here. It's also important to keep in mind that at the end of the Trump administration, there was a fire sale of mm-hmm. um, drilling and leasing permits, yeah. uh, you know, on public lands. And those are not actually being even being impacted by uh, this this new policy that's being implemented under the Biden administration. Uh, so, no, I mean, I, I don't think that there's anything radical you know, about uh, the agenda that that Holland or um, the Democratic administration is pursuing. Um, What I think, you know, is really happening is that we're finally, you know, rebalancing um, a very, you know, pro-oil status quo, you Mm -hmm. know, towards one that uh, is designed to protect natural, uh, you know, our natural resources, our public lands, you know, and to preserve those things for future generations, and then, you know, hopefully also to uh, use those lands and resources in the fight against climate change. And, you know, I, I, I think that some people might call that a radical agenda, um, but, you know, as the Pew uh, poll you cited at the beginning of this conversation, mm-hmm. and I think as, you know, virtually every expert in the world will tell you, uh, that's actually the, the scientific, scientifically sound and necessary uh, pass forward that we need to take. I, I get the sense that the only uh, defense that Republicans these days seem to have against any Democrat is uh, just to call them radical, whether they are or aren't. Uh, and that sort of seemed to me what was going on here, that they could have just replaced Holland with pretty much anyone and, you know, call them a radical, what, what did uh, Kennedy say, a, a, to the left of Lenin whack job. Because that seems to be what they do. So, uh, you know, that seems what's going on here, at least to me. But then the chair of the Wampanoag tribe said that radical is simply a code word for you're an Indian. Do you get uh, do you get that sense, Julian Brave Noise Cat, from from these hearings? You know, I I think. Well, firstly, I think it's important to point out that Kennedy was uh, so embarrassed by his left of when and whack job, uh, you know, statement that he actually had to retract it. 
Uh, but when he retracted it, he, he called her an extremist, uh, as though that was somehow <laughs> much better. You know, less offensive. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that there is a reasonable question here uh, about who, you know, gets uh, berated in the way that Barrasso, you know, felt was appropriate to berate Holland in the hearing. Um, you know, I think that it's it's reasonable to look at the other nominees who have moved through the Senate Energy and Natural Resource Committee, uh, Michael Regan, who's the Biden EPA administrator, um, and Jennifer Granholm, who's the uh, Secretary of Energy, you know, the leadership of the Department of Energy, and point out that, you know, neither of those two appointees, you know, were treated in the same way that, that, that Holland was, mm. um, and also to recognize, you know, that um, those sorts of implicit biases, uh, you know, have been shown in social science time and time again to impact the way that, you know, various people are treated in society, in the workplace, etc. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very important point to make, um, but I think it's also important to, you know, listen closely uh, at, to the outrage that, that conservatives are expressing because I think it actually reveals something about uh, sort of the conservative worldview instead mm -hmm. of, um, you know, fears that sort of guide the conservative movement. And what I found, you know, deeply ironic about all the Republican, um, you know, attacks on Holland is that there is this sort of theme underlying them that, you know, uh, conservatives think that Holland and, and the Biden administration are going to, you know, take away their jobs, kill their industries, and and, um, you know, undermine fundamentally their way of life. Yeah. And, you know, as a Native person, listening to that sort of expression of the conservative id, um, you know, I found it to be deeply ironic because, of course, uh, those are exactly the things that the United States did uh, to Native people. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, there's something very deep in conservative psychology, deep in the sort of culture of the conservative movement, um, where I think there's a, a fear that, you know, as soon as the oppressed, the dispossessed, um, the downtrodden get any sort of measure of power, we're going to turn around and do to them, you know, what they and their ancestors and governments did to us. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's not what's going to happen. Um, but I do find it very fascinating that they're very driven by that sort of fear. Yeah, it is really interesting. And I, and I think you're right on the money there. You talk about that in your Washington Post article and that uh, <laughs> about that idea that they are afraid you're going to do to us what we did to you. It's not going to happen, but they're frightened of it. And frankly, I'm just fine with that. I'm fi fine with, with their fear on that point. Uh, finally, uh, Julian, uh, as the uh, first Native American to head up interior, just what are you hoping to see her stand for and or do in that particular role? You know, I think that it's really important to signal that um, the empowerment of Native people and Native nations isn't just going to be good for um, Native people and nations, but that it's going to be good for everybody. It's going to be good for the environment. It's going to be good for uh, the climate. It's going to be good for the public lands uh, and, you know, for a broader uh, public that, you know, I think at the end of the day does care about these things. I think that reasonable people, even if they vote for, uh, you know, the folks who decided <laughs> that they needed to uh, make a scene at Holland's confirmation, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think that they do care about, 
protecting the environment, you know, ensuring that, uh, you know, our natural resources are, are passed on to future generations. And, you know, I'm very hopeful that um, under Holland's leadership, uh, the Interior Department can, you know, be one of the, the bright spots in the Biden administration uh, and can signal to, you know, many people that, uh, you know, empowering Native people, empowering Native leaders uh, is good for is good for everyone and that everybody can, can see themselves in that sort of a, a more diverse and pluralistic future. Julian Brave Noisecat is a journalist and activist and artist. He's vice president of policy and strategy at Data for Progress. Uh, his uh, recent articles at the Washington Post, one is called Why Senate Republicans Fear Deb Holland. Another at The Nation uh, headlined Republicans Failed to Sink Deb Holland's Nomination and looked like fools in the process. I will link to both of those articles as well as to your website, julianbravenoisecat.com. And of course, folks can follow you on the Twitters at jnoisecat. Julian, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast, sir. Hope you'll come back in the future. Yeah, thank you so, so much for having me. You bet. All right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Yay. Though I should note, Des, you know, when I when I saw what was going on with Holland, and uh, and she's being called a radical, mm-hmm. and she is uh, being, you know, the, pretending that they care about species, uh, right. endangered species. You know, it's obviously a proxy for something, and the question of whether it's a proxy for her being a, a Native American woman or just, you know, their fight for fossil fuels. It seems like that's it because the Republicans just have simply no governing principle whatsoever, but they do get millions of dollars now from the fossil fuel industry. That seems to be all they care about. Yeah, that's really all they do seem to care about. The uh, Interior Department calls our national forests, the the tagline is the land of many uses, and pretty much Republicans only care about fossil fuel uses. Well, also, they want to, uh, for logging, they'd like to cut down all the trees and sell <laughs> okay, those. Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah, so don't be so hard on the Republicans, Des. <laughs> Quick break, and we're back with the GNR right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Once again, repeating one of our top stories uh, today, the state of Texas, the governor of the great state of Texas, Greg Abbott, has announced that uh, the mask mandate is over. The restrictions on businesses are over. They can all reopen 100 percent capacity despite the hundreds and hundreds of Texans who are dying each and every day, each and every week from the covid virus. That, of course, uh, may distract from his horrific failure in recent weeks uh, f- during this uh, recent winter storm down in Texas, which knocked out power and water all over the state. Yep. With Texans still fighting uh, in some areas to get some clean water. As we discuss 
in our latest Green News Report. As the bitter cold eases, the big problem now for many remains access to water. Water crisis persists in Texas and Jackson, Mississippi, two weeks after winter storm. Latinos disproportionately exposed to worst water in U.S., new study finds. Plus, this is a textbook example of this kind of information and influence campaign in operation. As cities move to electrify buildings, the natural gas industry is striking back. All of that news from the Empire and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I don't know about you, Trey, but my car doesn't run off fairy dust. No, but your political ideology does, Senator Kennedy. My car doesn't run off unicorn urine. No, it runs off the same thing your campaigns do. Big oil. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, this storm in the south passed almost two weeks ago now, and yet folks are still paying the price for it? Oh, yes, they are, sadly. As we go to air in Texas, nearly 400,000 people across the state are still under boil water advisories. More than two weeks after that extreme winter storm pummeled large swaths of the south, repairs for burst pipes and water mains are hampered due to a shortage of licensed plumbers and materials across the vast state. I'd love to pummel large areas of the south at this point. But getting much Much less attention is the full-blown water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. Residents there are entering their third week without water because the city's aging, underfunded water system was not built for such extreme storms. Much of the city has no water at all due to no water pressure, leaving many residents with no clean drinking water to bathe, cook, or even flush toilets. Mm. Officials don't know when the water will be restored and have mobilized water tankers to neighborhoods, but the most vulnerable residents can't reach them. The Daily Beast reports that the water outages have disproportionately affected predominantly black areas of the city. Jackson is just one of many municipal water systems around the country that are teetering on the edge of failure due to lack of funding for maintenance and upgrades. You know, it's also the capital city of Mississippi. You would think they would want to take care of the people who live in their capital, but I guess too many of them are the wrong color. And according to a new analysis, millions in the United States are drinking water from systems that violate limits for dangerous contaminants or fail to meet federal health standards, and Latinos are disproportionately exposed. That's according to a new analysis of Environmental Protection Agency data conducted by The Guardian of more than 140,000 public water systems across the U.S. The analysis found that counties that are 25 percent Latino or more violate drinking water contaminants standards at twice the rate of predominantly white counties in the country. Well, they should move. The Biden administration is preparing another broad stimulus package to fund such long overdue repairs to U.S. infrastructure, but that's after the passage of the COVID relief bill. But Senate Republicans have indicated they will oppose it, like they opposed a similar trillion-dollar infrastructure package just last year. 
Speaking of COVID, President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID rescue plan passed by the House on Friday with zero Republican votes. It will provide $4.5 billion to the low-income home energy assistance program, which helps families afford utility bills, and it allocates $100 million to address health disparities from pollution and the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's if it passes the Senate. Well, no wonder Republicans don't want to support it. In other news, buildings are are one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous man-made climate change. So Seattle, Washington in February joined a growing number of cities updating their building codes to ban polluting natural gas in some new building construction. However, as cities are taking action, the natural gas empire is striking back to maintain its dominance and its profits. The American Gas Association is battling growing attempts by municipalities across the country to electrify buildings, including launching influence campaigns with advertising and payouts to social media stars to promote natural gas, (laughs) and lobbying state legislatures to pass preemption laws that block cities from banning natural gas. Because freedom and small government and all that. Scientists say that electrifying buildings and switching away from natural gas reduces indoor air pollution. And the bottom line, it is also one of the most efficient ways to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 to combat climate change, according to Princeton energy researcher Aaron Mayfield here in an interview with NPR. We cannot continue using natural gas for things like heating and cooking because it's not consistent with reaching a net zero goal. So there are more big battles ahead as the fossil fuel industry mobilizes to maintain its grip on the country. And they are very good at maintaining that grip, at least until they can't any longer. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Yeah. I laugh, but it's serious, though. (laughs) Yes, no. Even uh, building codes are now proxy fights over fossil fuels, just as we uh, started this show uh, talking about. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Uh, Thanks to my guest today, Julian Brave, Noise Cat of Data for Progress, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day uh, with us here on the Bradcast. It's greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by those of you who support our work up against the empire <laughs> by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Still don't know why ExxonMobil never stops by that site. Gee, what could it be? Uh, if you miss, uh, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You'll find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at simply the Bradblog. That is it. We will see you there until we see you here tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world, and may the force be with you. Yeah.